Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolodzic of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. EAC bias towards maintaining an adversarial equilibrium. So that means open sourcing models, keeping a healthy developer e- economy, not centralizing the compute, not centralizing the algorithms and the knowledge. AIs will keep other AIs in check, just like megacorps keep other megacorps in check. Uh, so, you know, Microsoft uh, competing with Google on this AI aspect as, is, is, is a, you know, an example. You fight power with power. And I think that maintaining this adversarial equilibrium is the way forward. And that's only possible if there's not a monopoly on intelligence. And so we're fighting anti-monopolization of intelligence fight. Embrace the variance and accelerate. So <laughs> that's the EAC way. Welcome to another episode of Moment of Zen. Today, we're blessed with the presence of Bayslord and Based Beth Jezos. If you don't know who they are, they're the founders of Effective Accelerationism. If you don't know what that is, it's a philosophy that counters effective altruism and aims to accelerate technological progress and all the benefits that come with it instead of slow development down in the name of AI safety. In this episode, we unpack what exactly is effective accelerationism, what are its intellectual foundations, how exactly is it different from effective altruism, and we have an AI safety debate joined by my co-host of the Cognitive Revolution, Nathan Lebetz. This was recorded Monday before the SVB news, which is why we don't mention it. Okay, on to the show. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Moment of Zen is brought to you by Riverside, the platform Dan, Antonio, and I use to record all of our podcast episodes with remote guests. Riverside captures exceptional audio and video quality, makes it incredibly easy for us to record conversations with multiple guests and then edit and publish within minutes. If you're hosting a podcast or often getting interviewed, use our code ZEN to get a 20% discount at Riverside FM. The link is in our description box. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. So we have Antonio big-timing us again. Yeah. Where, where is Antonio? <laughs> 
I, I just I question his commitment to the show. Yeah. <laughs> For people who are listening, make sure you at reply Antonio on Twitter and tell him to come on the show. Yeah. And uh, neg him and pretend you know pretend you don't know about his startup or his book and just just you know him from Moment of Zen. Welcome to another episode of Moment of Zen. We're here today joined by Nathan LeBenz from the Cognitive Revolution and our special guests, uh, Bayes Lord and based Beth Jezos. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us, Eric. Beth, why don't we start with you? Why don't you introduce the Effective Accelerationism Movement, uh, EAC, and, uh, and, and the origin of how you came to start it, and then Bayes Lord will we'll have you get into it. So uh, I guess I'm, I'm Beth Jezos uh, online um, in the Anon Twitter sphere. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, the background I'm willing to share is that I used to be a theoretical physicist. I've worked in uh, big tech and ML. And yeah, overall, uh, ended up accidentally uh, with Bayes Lord and some others uh, sparking a very active uh, community online uh, called, uh, you know, our ideology is called Effective Accelerationism, um, kind of a play on uh, effective altruism to some extent. Um, uh, it is based on. Uh, some ideas, and we'll get into the, kind of its influences and, and bases. Uh, very well read uh, about on, on this, and can have a lot of comments on this. But in in our case, I think it uh, started um, as a uh, just a, you know hanging out in Twitter Spaces, uh, creating anon accounts, uh, posting on Twitter. Uh, there's an account that's pretty famous in AI circles uh, called uh, Rune at uh, T S Z Z L, I think. Um, and uh, kind of the, the, the social media graph in the neighborhood of Rune is a very interesting part of Twitter, literally called this part of Twitter, or Teapot, right? Um, and uh, uh, essentially, this is a movement with, that started within this part of Twitter, Teapot, um, focused on techno-optimism and being optimistic about uh, the potential of AI. And as sort of a counter-movement to... Uh, pervasive uh, doomerism or, or pessimism and demoralization that we feel, you know, was pe- pervasive, especially in, you know, when was it started? 2020, late 2020, 2021. Um, I think, you know, people were pretty, you know, the economy was crashing, things were dark. Uh, it was still the pandemic. And I think, uh, you know, thinking about a better future uh, and discussing like, where where's humanity going in all this, right? We've been through a couple of chaotic years what does the future hold? And just having discussions online, actually in Twitter spaces, ended up accidentally sparking this movement. So I think uh, I think originally Bayes and I would just chat at like weird hours of the day after our big tech jobs, uh, you know, our, our days were, were done uh, and just talk about kind of the future of the universe and everything. And eventually some folks ended up noting down some of the things we were, we were saying and to bullet points and kind of putting out a sort of... Uh, shit post like uh blog post um and in fact uh uh it kind of it kind of took off from there um and uh, i think it was uh, zesty another account that coined effective accelerationism uh and uh, yeah it, it it just spread like wildfire in in small a small circle of anonymous accounts uh in tech um and eventually you know we decided to write a more formal set of notes on some of the principles um, after having many chats about it. And that was a, another blog post, which was kind of uh, principles of, and tenets of EAC. And from there, we kind of just let let go. And it just kept growing and growing. And uh, you know, now there's 
quite a few uh, well-known figures either involved or accidentally aligned with the movement. Um, and it seems to be taking off, especially as, you know, AI technology is accelerating. And so is, you know, the knowledge of like AI uh, doomerism or kind of the popularity of doomerism, I think with the, the recent uh, podcasts on that. Um, and so as, as a counter movement to uh, doomerism and what we call uh, deceleration or, or, or decels more, uh, more broadly, uh, you know, for us, it's been, it's been an exciting time, but um, I, I can dive in. So that's the origin. I can dive to, into what exactly is effective uh, accelerationism. What are kind of the, the principles uh, uh, behind it? And what are you, what are we united by in terms of uh, where we think uh, the world is going? That, that'd be helpful. Why don't you give a brief overview of, of what, are the, what are the main tenets, the high level, and how does it overlap and how does it differ with effective altruism? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's pretty, that's a pretty uh, deep question there. I mean, I, hopefully we're going to get to dig in, especially with uh, uh, Nathan uh, joining us as well. Uh, I look forward to that. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so effective accelerationism is about recognizing that there's this thing called the techno-capital machine, which is kind of the, the capitalist system coupled with technology. And it's this machine that uh, assigns uh, capital to things that have utility towards its own growth, right? And you could think of uh, the capitalist system almost as a form of life, right? Life is uh, self-replicating, it's self-adaptive, and it's always seeking to uh, reassign usually energetic or, or chemical capital towards things that have utility towards its survival and growth, right? And you have this happening on all sorts of scales. And uh, effective accelerationism is about recognizing we're in a self-adaptive system that can kind of figure itself out. And by just contributing to the system, you're ensuring uh, a better and brighter future for all. And uh, it's kind of a counter movement uh, to more top-down utilitarianism Right? It's kind of like more of a bottoms up uh, emergent uh, altruism. And it's about kind of having faith that the system will figure itself out. Right. Um, and everything co evolves with one another. Uh, and we don't have to worry or try to control think everything, every aspect of our lives in a top down fashion to maximize uh, safety because essentially the system tends to. Uh, converge onto assigning capital to things that have uh, positive utility to the world. And it does so in the most efficient manner compared to sort of more spreadsheet ethics or spreadsheet utilitarianism. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, some, some folks think that EAC is strictly a reactionary movement to EA. It's not quite, it's mostly about uh, techno optimism and uh, you know, building, encouraging others to build and encouraging others to contribute to the advancement and growth of civilization uh, in the way that is of the highest impact, right? But how do we measure that is different than, let's say, EAs, where EAs uh, or utilitarians would measure either hedons or utilons, you know, how much suffering reduction. Uh, in our case, it's more how much are you contributing to the scope and scale of civilization as measured by kind of our energetic uh, consumption uh, of free energy. And it turns out that uh, this principle 
is kind of the 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 loss function or the the function that is optimized naturally uh, by nature. Nature tends to want to grow uh, organisms that uh, consume for energy and and prefer, statistically speaking, configurations of matter that are consuming more free energy. And the point of EAC is to recognize this and to kind of lean into kind of the, the, the natural forces guiding the progress of civilization. So it's kind of like, it's a very meta philosophy. Uh, it's a sort of meta culture recognizing that growth is good and contributing to growth uh, is the ultimate form of good. And most other forms of good are kind of projections or specializations of this kind of meta optimization. So that's kind of a very high level overview. I'm sure Bayeslord can give uh, a less uh, theoretical physics coded uh, uh, background on, on EAC, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop here for now. It, it sounds like a spiritual argument for capitalism, right? <laughs> sort of. I mean, it's, it's trying to understand kind of where are we going? What is the driving force that has brought us to this point? Um, it's kind of like a self-adaptive uh, system of, of cultures, of technology, of we call them meta-organisms. So that could be groups, tribes, corporations, nation states, and all of these competing against each other at all scales has yielded a very robust system that's kind of dynamically adaptive. And it's about recognizing the mechanisms that lead to successful and sustainable uh, growth and anti-fragility of, of, uh, of civilization and kind of trying to uh, be proponents of these uh, principles and um, reinforce them rather than kind of you know, demonizing them or saying that we should uh, decelerate or capitalism is bad and we should, uh, you know, the, even though the market has deemed certain causes to be of low utility and has assigned low capital to it, you know, for example, uh, EAs would want to kind of do deformations of the markets, right? Like take capital from one place uh, and extract it and manually inject it elsewhere, which is kind of uh, a kind of fluctuation that tends to dissipate over time. And so we saw it with FTX and SBF, right? He was trying to kind of extract uh, capital uh, using uh, crypto. Uh, well, not crypto at large, but you know, crypto exchange, and was trying to reassign it at all sorts of uh, organizations uh, uh, and places that you know wouldn't necessarily have had capital uh, without his manual assignment. And I guess our thesis is that um, you know the market usually figures out what is important. Manually reassigning capital from one place to another is not a sustainable practice. It's much better to build a company if you want to see a change in the world, right? It's like contrasting ESG efforts versus Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk just builds companies. He creates a meta-organism that is self-sustaining and attract capital uh, because it is growing and going to grow its amount of uh, attraction of capital over time. Uh, and that creates a self-sustaining organization that uh, has lasting impact in the world. Uh, and objectively, you know, like Tesla has had a massive impact on, on green energy, much more than these green energy funds have had, in, in my opinion, at least. But um, happy to be corrected there. Baze, would you, would you like to give your take on how to summarize EAC? I think that's like a really good summary. Um, 
One of the biggest things that comes to mind to me about uh, the, the the critique of EA is just this. Um, I don't want to treat it as too monolithic, but if we look back at the history of EA, um, early on there was a pretty clear and and sort of uh, united focus on buying. I sort of say this like buying cheap today utility. They were like, uh, if we look around, money is not being allocated very well in these certain places. For example, uh, like we can very cheaply purchase uh, malaria uh, preventing bed nets uh, or deworming medicine, and and these sort of like global health things were were pretty common, uh, commonly coming up because uh, there yeah there's there's some opportunity there uh, to buy what yeah cheap today utility. But over the history of EA, um, as the, uh, you know, sort of in like the novelty seeking of the uh, 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 of the ideology and of the community, uh, over time it seems like uh, people uh, were very attracted to this notion that uh, actually there's a lot of utility out in the future. There are going to be so many more future humans, uh, future life forms uh, than there are today in the future, and the further we go out, the more that's true. And therefore, uh, we should try to focus our efforts on helping them instead of helping people a lot today. But the issue is that when you actually ask how expensive it is to buy that utility, it's much more expensive uh, than buying today utility or tomorrow utility or something like this. And that that is a function of it being difficult to do planning and prediction in a, in a chaotic, complex system uh, at very, very long time uh, horizons. And so you're... The way I sort of think about this is that uh, on a long time scale, you're um, spending your 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 uh, uh, the money that you're using to try to pick up more utility is is getting uh, you know ever more diluted with with every time step. So you sort of imagine this branching tree of futures, right? It's like your money is getting it's trickling down and it's just uh, you know sort of exponentially diluted. Now, of course, that's a function of how correct you are uh, in your predictions and, and how you're targeting things, but. Uh, I think that's probably the main thing I want to say. I think, uh, you know, Beth, you always do a great job summarizing it. So. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, a main tenet of EAC is that top-down control doesn't work very well for self-adaptive systems with emergent properties like economies or biological systems like controlling, you know, spread of viruses and so on. Um, and I think the same is going to be applicable to AI where there's kind of these emergent properties when you reach certain scale of these systems and trying to have top-down control of them is uh, is kind of a moot point or very difficult. Yeah, overall, we think that there, there's a there's a tendency in culture that we're, we're seeing or, or a, a trend in culture towards sort of very uh, high centralization and suppression of variance for more optimal control. And so whether that's suppression of cultural variants or suppression of variants of, say, potential outputs of a, of a machine learning system, in general, there's kind of a trend towards centralizing uh, for easier control uh, as opposed to decentralizing and suppression of variants. And overall, we think that in order for civilization to advance the most rapidly and for us to reach a prosperous future where the scope and scale of civilization has increased substantially, we need to embrace the variance. Uh, we need to embrace freedom, efficient marketplaces of ideas, of neural nets, of uh, culturals, cu cultures, uh, uh, et cetera. Uh, and why is that? Well, essentially you could think of 
a sort of parameter, a hyperparameter landscape for for all of these things, whether it's uh, how to how to run a company, how to set up a culture of an organization or a nation, uh, or how to tune the architecture of a neural net. Um, everything is optimized through this kind of a competitive landscape and a sort of evolutionary process. And the speed at which this evolutionary process can evolve is bounded by uh, the variance that you allow uh, for this evolutionary process. And if you suppress variance, you move very slowly, which makes it very controllable. But it also makes it kind of um, crystallized and static. And as the fitness landscape of uh, cultures, of ways to organize oneself, of how to tune a technology is always changing, you want to maintain that sort of adaptability and dynamism in order to always be uh, optimal. So yeah, so so essentially, you know, effective accelerationism is about it. It is somewhat libertarian, about encouraging uh, variance, experimentation, building towards a better future, but not through kind of top-down control prescriptions of how to how to live live one's life or how to uh, run your company or how to tune a neural net. It's more about uh, bottoms-up uh, marketplaces of everything uh, and encouraging. Uh, sort of this evolutionary adaptive process in the space of everything to run its course wherever that may take us. And and it's an argument for the fact that this is the best way to go if we want to ensure kind of robustness and anti-fragility of, of everything at all scales. And so it's kind of a unifying principle. It's anchored in like thermodynamics. I won't go down that that whole rabbit hole here. I could talk your ear off about that. But yeah, uh, essentially, you know, we were getting worried with kind of like several sort of uh, uh, movements that were emerging that kind of are coercing or co-opting uh, organizations uh, throughout the Western world that kind of um, uh, seek to suppress variants uh, and still certain opinions and and favor kind of top-down control, right? Um, and we needed a counter movement that was bottoms up, and uh, you know it's natural that it emerged from anonymous circles because uh, Twitter anons, you know, many of us work in, in tech and so on, and an attack vector is you know uh, threatening one's uh, employment if one doesn't comply with kind of the the prescribed subspace of opinions, and so you know in our in our case we just want to argue for variance. Apparently, that can be a controversial idea in some circles. And so it's natural that it emerged from anonymous uh, uh, Twitter accounts. Uh, and But now, obviously, there's all sorts of uh, real names that have uh, joined joined the fight. I mean, you've, you've hosted Amjad. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I think Mark Andreessen is pretty public about uh, his bio uh, change. And um, obviously, there's, there's some inspiration from Balaji's work on uh, network states and so on. And so, uh, you know, it seems like there's, you know, this counter movement is is reaching, well, more of the mainstream of tech, obviously not the core, um, you know, broad mainstream. But overall, it's a good time to have kind of a, a counter movement to uh, effective altruists and AI existential risk uh, doomers because, Otherwise, it would be unopposed, and such an ideology could do quite a bit of damage in terms of demoralizing people about the future, 
EAC is about building. It's about building towards a better future. It's about finding the points of uh, leverage to you know that can really increase uh, the scope and scale of humanity. So working on on deep tech, working on technologies that really move the needle in terms of like how how big of a civilization can we sustain with these technologies. And so it's kind of less about writing, uh, less a culture about writing or word celery, as the, the, the Twitter anons would say, um, and more about uh, building or as, uh, as said on Twitter, uh, shape rotation, which is, that's a whole meme we can get into. But uh, yeah, so uh, it's kind of a revolt by the engineers that feel perhaps suppressed in their roles in large orgs that are very top-down uh, controlled internally. Um, and it's been a way for uh, builders to express how they feel about their role in society and what they're contributing to civilization and how they can feel happy with their day-to-day lives contributing to kind of a broader goal of civilizational advancement. And so, you know, to us, that's the antidote to doomerism, and we're trying to spread it. I find it really interesting and, and refreshing that there is a kind of bottoms-up uh, to use the analogy of the cathedral versus the bazaar, this feels a little bit more bazaar-like. And um, one one thing that you mentioned in terms of like civilization and and energy, uh, there, there's a terrific book by a Stanford professor Ian Morris, "Why the West Rules for Now," and he he's a he's an archaeologist, classicist, and he, he tries to take fifteen thousand years of human history and have a normalizing function across how, how do you measure civilizational progress. And his his attempt, whether or not you agree with it, I mean, go read the book, uh, is he, he breaks everything down in jewels and just like what is the average person in a given civilization? Um, and, and he spends most of the book contrasting China and, and the West at whatever point, Rome, medieval Europe, uh, you know, age of discovery, colonialism, and the, charting the, the kind of ability to capture energy per person as kind of the measure of progress. I, I thought it was just a fascinating thing to try to take such a wide uh, chunk of history and, and break it down to kind of a quantitative metric. And then obviously, if you think about kind of where we've been since the 70s, it, it's like we kind of had this up and to the right uh, increase in energy per person. And then we decided that efficiency was the thing to focus on. And 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 we don't actually, I mean, I'm pretty sure that Amer- average American energy usage has decreased since the seventies. And it's kind of crazy given that we, we, we have fission power, right? We're working on fusion, but, but fission does work and it's extremely safe. Like we could be in an environment where we, as a civilization continue to invest in additional per capita energy usage. And I I don't know, like how much better would our lives be today if we had that much more abundant, cheap energy. And, and so I, it's an area that I am, I'm very excited about of, and, and, What's interesting is also there are other people on the political spectrum, uh, like the Ezra Kleins of the world and Derek Thompson talking about abundance and, and, and building. And so I do think that there's a counter to the uh, doomerism of just generally, whether you take climate change or AGI, of everything is really bad. We need to, to take control and uh, manage it versus like, no, we're going to, you know, to take the term from the Martian, we're going to science the shit out of this and we're going to actually move civilization forward across every realm that we're participating in. Oh, that's that I got to read that book. Um, 
I, I think, I do think that um, if you, so, so some of the crazier parts of, of, of EAC are kind of taking inspiration from the, the mathematics of how life emerged, right? There's these works by Jeremy England uh, at MIT, trying to understand the physics and the thermodynamics of life and trying to apply that sort of thinking to kind of economies, replacing, you know, energy with, with capital is kind of some of the thinking that's, that's influenced EAC. But ultimately, you know, energy and money are kind of interchangeable. And it turns out that, at least from the point of view of life, right, like all forms of life uh, are trying to optimize their capture of free energy for their own sustenance and growth. And, and um, you know, replication and evolution emerge as a byproduct of this tendency, which you can derive from just pure thermodynamics. The universe prefers futures that have uh, lower free energy. Uh, and so it, it's going to basically favor configurations of matter that are replicating and just seek out all the free energy in the universe and consume it uh, and so on. And to some folks, it's like, okay, well, why don't you just light the whole world on fire? Actually, actually, that's suboptimal on large timescales, right? It's much better to have a self-replicating uh, organism that then goes finds pockets that are much further out in the universe with either some some form of intelligence uh, and, and go consume that than to just like you know have everything explode in one go. Uh, so you know, just burning fuel locally is kind of a, a local optimum in this landscape, and life itself is kind of a a more non-local optimum. But if you think about that. Um, Essentially, every organism or suborganism, including your cells, your neurons, and so on, every um, human and group of human and so on, they're all trying to uh, optimize uh, uh, how uh, secure they are in their growth, uh, and they're trying to secure resources. And the goal of intelligence is to give you the tools to find and capture and, and be able to harness energy from the environment your growth and replication. And so we do think that energy consumption is a good uh, metric, a good benchmark for the progress of civilization because it comes from kind of the first principles of how we, we benchmark uh, life. So it's, it's really interesting that, you know, this uh, uh, Ian Morris uh, guy uh, had written about this in the past. Uh, definitely get to check that out. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, there's a, a notion of the Kardashev scale. I don't know if you're familiar, maybe for the listeners, Kardashev scale is kind of a logarithmic scale about um, uh, measure, trying to measure progress of civilization in terms of how much energy consumption in terms of wattage uh, that we have. Um, and I would summarize the goal of EAC as kind of uh, climbing the Kardashev gradient, try to find the direction of most rapid increase of uh, free energy consumption, but on a on a large time scale, so you average out, um, you know, on where we are on the Kardashev scale on a long uh, horizon, and our goal is to maximize uh, that. So it's it's to maximize kind of the scope and scale of civilization on kind of an infinite time scale. We we like to discount over time because we can't necessarily predict everything in the future. And the further out you go, it gets exponentially harder to predict. So you can discount it exponentially, but like we do in markets when there's an interest rate. Um, uh, but that is kind of the, the, the function we're optimizing in terms of effective accelerationism. And the, the word effective is kind of figuring out 
you know, gradients are like, what is the, what is the action or what is like my, how do I change my actions or my policy or my culture of my day-to-day life to maximally influence and, and climb uh, this Kardashev gradient? Um, and so uh, effective accelerationism is kind of like how, you know, I have a skill set or I could gain a skill set, some information. I have, I don't know, I have some capital, I have some leverage. How do I maximally leverage what I have in order to most positively influence the growth and scope and scale of civilization? And that's what truly being an effective accelerationist is, at least that's how we're, we're defining it. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of parallels with EA, right? The EA has a different loss function. They're trying to minimize uh, suffering and so on, at least to me as a physicist or former physicist, um, a very subjective loss function um, can lead to kind of weird anomalous solutions like uh, wireheading, right? So um, Baze, would you like to explain what wireheading is uh, and how we should probably avoid it? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I like to think about wireheading as sort of a spectrum of things, um, um, right? But the sci-fi version of wireheading, uh, as uh, you guys probably know, uh, right? So, uh, so you know, in the future, some uh, Neuralink type device uh, gets implanted into people's brains, uh, you know, probably stimulating the um, reward centers, uh, and uh, people sort of just get stuck in these very uh, uh, sort of simplistic lives where they just sort of self-stimulate and uh, have uh, sort of all of their uh, pleasure comes from from this. And it's, uh, yeah, I think it's meant to be a pretty dystopic vision uh, when it comes up. Um, but yeah, this is actually, I mean, in my opinion, this is a spectrum of things, right? So you can sort of, uh, I mean, even, you know, Twitter or something is like a very, very low grade uh, version of, of wireheading, right? You're kind of self-stimulating uh, with just like very repetitive uh, stimulus, right? In a way, I think maybe TikTok is an intensification of that. Uh, for me personally, I've, that, that's been my experience. Uh, I don't have the app on my phone. Uh, it's just found it way too uh, intense uh, in that way. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's, that pretty much explains it. Um, and if you're optimizing for kind of minimizing suffering and maximizing pleasure, it leads to a lot of the technologies we have today, right? They're just trying to, you know, give you dopamine or whatever, <laughs> serotonin, uh, and it's it's stuck in a local optimum. This is not what we should be maximizing, like our pleasure. We're just pleasuring ourselves to death, right? And instead, if we were focused on kind of growing our capabilities in the worlds of atoms, uh, necessarily means we need higher levels of intelligence in order to capture the free energy. That's why we evolved intelligence. But you know, higher levels of intelligence at a civilizational scale could be, you know, using AI to crack nuclear fusion, right? Using AI to uh, design uh, materials to capture carbon, to um, you know, harness all sorts of forms of energy around us, right? With higher levels of intelligence, we can find pockets of energy around us that are much harder to access. And so we think it's a much better sort of function to uh, optimize for that kind of not only pushes our energetic consumption, but also necessarily increases the amount of intelligence in the universe, because in order to consume more more energy, uh, you need more intelligence. And so, um, yeah, that's the gist of it. Back on the the, the point about uh, centralized sort of top-down control, um, just one thing. It's not just that 
it's not very good at accomplishing the goals that it sets out for itself. Um, it's that it actually has a tendency to backfire in a lot of ways. I think like the go-to classic example is like central planning in Soviet Russia, right? <laughs> Something like this. Um, because the system that is doing the control uh, necessarily uh, has, you know, like bottlenecks and aggregating information about how the system is functioning, taking measurements uh, and, and bounded intelligence and planning uh, due to like, like historically due to coordination between humans. Uh, but like the, there is a more general like limit there. Um, uh, what, what you get is actually that there are many unintended consequences and uh, a downside effects. And so, uh, yeah, we could talk about what those look like. I think this is really interesting in the case of of, of talking about uh, AI safety, AI alignment, AI risk, all of that. Um, so, but yeah, I just wanted to point out it, it actually there is there is quite a lot of downside as well. But before we jump into the AI stuff, two two things off of what Beth mentioned before. So I'm a total Dyson Sphere nerd. So like when Dyson Sphere is like that that to me is like what we should be heading towards for civilization. And for the listeners who don't know what a Dyson Sphere is, it's a theoretical device that you'd build around a star to capture all of the energy. So think of like solar panels, but if you build it all around uh, like a sun, and then you have that much more energy to do all cool stuff for spacefaring. And then there's a there's another thing that you made me think of, and, and this is, I think, a good transition to the AI point, is one of my favorite uh, short stories from Asimov is one called The Last Question. And the the... The premise is humanity comes up with this really smart thing. I want to say it was called multivac and, and it's like an AGI and they ask it a question. They can ask it any question. And then they ask it, uh, can you reverse entropy, right? Can you, can you stop the second law of thermodynamics and the machine can't come up with an answer? It's like GPT breaking every single time. And then it kind of progresses and I won't spoil the end. But through thousands of years of human civilization, in in a pursuit of this question of can you re- reverse entropy, and civilization gets that much more advanced in kind of the pursuit of this question, and the the end of the the story I think is is pretty spectacular. And I won't spoil, you know, it's a short story. Go read it. Um, but I don't know if you guys have read it. Absolutely love that story. Again, I won't I won't spoil it. Um, but it, it it's funny that like uh, the goal there is to reverse. Uh, you know, or to violate the second law, because in fact, the generalization of the second law of thermodynamics to um, not not equilibrium states, right? Everybody learns thermodynamics in school about like, if everything's at equilibrium, here's the theoretical heat flux, etc. Um, there are generalizations to out of equilibrium systems, right? Which is mo- most systems, including most systems that are alive. We're not just a, a soup of matter. We are very much out of equilibrium and maintaining or out of equilibrium state with the environment is what it means to be alive, right? And so the generalized law, the generalized second law is actually uh, what has driven matter to organize into systems that are alive, essentially, right? And it is this, you know, this law of the universe preferring futures that have lower free energy, that the free energy has been consumed because free energy, for those, those not familiar is more or less energy minus entropy, right? And so you want to minimize free energy, you want to consume energy, and you want to increase entropy in a, in a fine-tuned balance, though. Um, you don't want to go too too crazy on the the, the entropy. Uh, but uh, 
uh, yeah, so actually, um, you, you can apply this sort of generalized second law of thinking to all sorts of systems. And at least to me, from an intellectual standpoint, um, creating this account, you know, uh, experimenting with these writings has been trying to, you know, in a non-academic setting, extend some principles from physics to understanding kind of um, uh, economics and, uh, um, you know, systems comprised of, of humans and groups of humans uh, through the lens of, of, of physics. And in order to make predictions about where are we going on average, I don't know the details, but I know on average, I can show that, you know, these futures are exponentially more likely. And in fact, if we get to it, uh, as, as we're going to get to the, the back and forth with Nathan, we get to sort of the, the paperclip uh, maximizer uh, uh, fable. Uh, and uh, there's all sorts of uh, AI existential risk fables like Grey Goo and so on. You can like show they are not uh, tractable or likely from the laws of physics. Uh, but we'll we'll get into that, I think, uh, a bit later. But I just want to comment because you you mentioned the second law. Yeah. A few questions that will segue into the AI safety conversation. One is, uh, at the end of Jeffrey West's book, Scale, which is all about natural, you know, uh, scaling laws, he, he quotes someone else where he says something like, uh, the only people that think runaway growth, economic growth is sustainable are... Uh, idiots and economists. Um, and, and so that, that's something that he's, he's worried about. And then, of course, the sustainability term begs the question of sustainable for whom. Um, and, and so there's my next question, which is, like, how do you see the roles of, of, human, of humans uh, in, in this kind of accelerationist world? You mentioned in the manifesto that it's not exactly transhumanist. And, and then lastly, um, you know, if Eliezer or pick whoever, um, you know, AI safety uh, you know, or Doomer, uh, kind of, you know, smartest person uh, was was listening in, I'm sure they would agree with a lot of the kind of evolutionary descriptions. But I'm curious, like, where, where would the fundamental disagreement or fundamental different assumption uh, be? So th those are kind of some, some big related questions I'd like to see uh, those transition to. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I'd say, like, um, at least personally, my journey was to be a humanist first. I wanted to maximize the scope and scale of human and civilization. But once I understood more of how the universe uh, actually works, right? Like in reality, every organism and meta organism is always like rooting for its own team, right? Whether it's our cells looking to replicate and, and pass down their genetic code, right? The selfish gene theory, um, or it's kind of like cultures trying to, to replicate or uh, and, and be successful in kind of consuming the mind share or it's uh, companies trying to grow and capture the market. Um, everything is competing for kind of uh, its own interest. And so if you apply this to all scales, including team human, all we know is that there's going to be a future where there's some form of life uh, and because intelligence is an evolutionary advantage, it's most likely be will be very intelligent that will figure out how to spread even further than than our current planet. Will that be this direct descendants of humans that are biological substrate? Maybe. Will it be a sort of hybrid between 
uh, non-biological matter hybridized with biological beings, perhaps? Will it be pure AI that are like von Neumann probes made of non-biological matter? It's, it's, it's also potentially likely, right? Um, and I think like the thing about EAC is that we're kind of open to whatever comes next as long as life in our corner of the universe gets to keep growing because in this uh, sort of race against, uh, well, this race following, you know, the tendency of the universe to consume more free energy, you're either getting busy growing or getting busy dying. There's no such thing as like, um, you know, sticking around, just staying the same. Um, and so for us, it's kind of like a sort of meta humanism, right? We're, we're team whatever comes next. And um, so we're not necessarily saying that it's going to be humans like, you know, hybridizing with machine and then going, becoming fully machine. It might be that we do create, you know, von Neumann probes for those that are not familiar are kind of this theoretical concept of self-replicating machines that are kind of a virus throughout the stars and uh, come to a planet, figure out how to manufacture themselves and, and spread. Right. Um, but essentially what we can, what we can understand is that intelligence is an evolutionary advantage in this this competition for for resources or or even even this fight against the universe uh, of of finding pockets of free energy to to sustain and replicate oneself. Uh, and so, whatever comes next is probably going to be as intelligent, if not more intelligent, than we are. And we're open to whatever comes next, but we know that that's kind of where we're going. And I think there's a sort of um, calm and serenity that comes with accepting whatever comes next. Because the reality is that um, the notion of human, the notion of anything uh, just drifts at all times, right? Like our genetic code drifts. Um, we're always evolving. There's nothing in nature that just stays the same. And so I think that um, anchoring on like the good future, quote unquote, being that we maintain the current state of humanity and maintain our local genetic neighborhood or a local neighborhood in matter configuration space forever. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's a good future. I don't think that's anti-fragile against the stochasticity and things that could go wrong in nature and erase us. And so for us, we're all, we're trying to kind of minimize existential risk to life itself as a whole. And in order to do that, we got to favor growth uh, of civilization and life itself more broadly defined than just through biology. Um, and so is that post-human? Is that transhuman? I don't know. Those are old labels. We're, we're, a whole, we're trying to be a, a whole different thing that's kind of more open-minded. I, I think it's like good to, to maybe emphasize this. Like, I think I would be happiest to see all of those things uh, sort of thrive uh right like this idea of having higher variants is 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 like pretty baked in and into uh you know the set of futures i think like we we prefer and, and i think uh are like sort of borne out by by the principles um yeah but i think uh this thing about the sort of psychology uh, or the psychological thesis of of yak right um it's like sort of equanimity in the face of the singularity or something um, it's like pretty critical, right? When you contrast it with, um, you know, 20 plus years, uh, of like intensifying fear, uh, you know, increasing amygdala hijack at culture scale, um, right. Uh, 
this sort of uh, clinging on to uh, the way that it, it it is or the way that it was, um, right? There, there's like a kind of deep fallacy in there, I think, that is, I mean, yeah, uh, this might be my personal bias, but it is, I guess it's a little bit, there's a little bit of a, like a Buddhist insight there, right? You, you, you can actually have uh, equanimity in the face of all this change. And actually it's like, uh, if you, if you can figure out how to cultivate that within yourself, you're going to be a lot happier. To address kind of the, the second set of questions about underlying assumptions, I think that, um, AI existential risk folks think that, um, something, a concept called FOOM, uh, or gray goo or, you know, kind of runaway AI progress kind of singularities exist. Um, and at least uh, something we believe in EAC is that that's not the case. Um, in a sense, like uh, every biological system is always trying to quote unquote foom. It's always trying to grow, capture more resources, replicate at all times. But what keeps it in check is kind of competition, uh, limited resources, uh, and the laws of physics, right? It costs energy to for a biological system to optimize itself, to find resources and grow and and replicate um and you know there's no such thing as sort of recursive self-optimization uh for ai i mean in fact it's a topic of research called meta-learning uh or hierarchical uh, bayesian networks if you want to get technical um but essentially we've always tried to have ai optimize itself since the dawn of time but it's just very hard because um essentially you you have that that minimum cost of of querying uh, this this simulation, either a simulation of a neural net or, or a literal instance of a neural net, uh, to to get a sense of like what value of every parameter or hyperparameter is better than the other, uh, and that has a thermodynamic or energetic cost to it. Uh, so in terms of biology, it's like you you fire up another instance of a, a human or whatever organism you're optimizing for either it's genetics or it's neural architecture, and then you run that and you, you feed it, and then you run that experiment, you see if it was successful or not. It's similar in neural networks. You got to train a whole neural network and, and see it through and then test its, its performance in order to, to optimize the architecture. Um, and so we, we think that, uh, you know, that we'll randomly tweak one thing about the architecture and then it will be like massively better uh, all of a sudden, and then recursively self-improve in a runaway fashion, is very implausible from the laws of optimization. If you know, if you're anybody who's practiced, uh, you know, machine learning and applied machine learning at scale, uh, and also, you know, theoretically, you could apply that same sort of thinking to biology. You know, maybe there's a there's a configuration of matter that just like just achieves crazy viral self-replication, and biology is always trying to find that optimum but it hasn't so far. So it must be hard and kind of maybe there's no such optimum. Uh, uh, and so I think as well, like there's a, there's a few concepts of like, like kind of very bleak futures that they paint as like, um, uh, you know, the worst case scenarios for runaway AI. And I think two of those are like uh, gray goo uh, and uh, paperclip maximizers. And so uh, let me, let me tackle gray goo uh, real quick. Um, and uh, gray goo is like this assumption that AI, if you have runaway AI, uh, it just figures out how to densify its intelligence 
all the way down to engineering nanotech that is like self-replicating and consuming everything in the world to turning into this kind of weird meta organism of, of nanotech goo. Um, and ultimately that's, that that's just describes like most uh, uh, biological systems to be honest. Um, but formally, like there's no reason like an intelligence train on GPT three or, or, or sorry, train on scraping the internet, like GPT 3.5 or whatever they're at now uh, would be better at predicting how nature uh, behaves than than uh, you know uh, one could obtain from querying nature and, and running the simulation, running the experiments physically. Right, nature is kind of its the best simulator of itself at the nanoscale, and so any sort of like simulation based uh, argument, right? Oh, the neural net's just going to model how the world works and understand it and predict it and top-down design nanotechnology that's much better than biological systems at consuming energy and consuming everything in the environment for their replication, uh, that's just not plausible uh, uh, because uh, nature has kind of a sort of uh, irreducibility uh, and it's how complex it is to represent kind of the emergent behavior behaviors of nature. Uh, this computational irreducibility concept is something, you know, Stephen Wolfram famous mathematician, uh, has written a lot about, um, and, uh, you know, in a sense that kind of, that's kind of a counter argument to like having a super intelligent AI will cause us to create nanotech that consumes the world. So that's kind of counter argument, um, against gray goo, which is like a doomsday scenario, uh, that like, you know, uh, AI existential risk people use to, uh, argue for, you know, regulating AI and stopping all progress. Um, and to, to, so to us, it seems like a very zero or near zero probability occurrence. And so to weigh that as like infinite negative reward and get Pascal mugged by this potential future, that seems like a massive opportunity cost for good of like accelerating AI technological progress instead that can yield a lot more for civilization. Um, and so to us, like, you know, that's, that's one way uh, we differ quite a bit. Um, when it comes to paperclip maximizers, I guess, and, and maybe Nathan can correct me, but the, the fable is that, um, you know, if you don't figure out how to, uh, how to align AI, um, and alignment is a whole uh, uh, topic now, uh, but alignment is kind of like, align AI towards human goals. Uh, if you don't do that, then you're going to end up with an AI that has some weird secret goal that may be of very low utility, uh, like just producing as many paper clips as possible, right? But the argument against that is that actually any organism or meta-organism that doesn't assign all its kind of capital or resources towards things that have utility towards its sustenance and growth will get outcompeted by another organism, right? This happens in like organizations, maybe they adopt a culture that's kind of uh, woke or counterproductive and they start kind of crumbling or getting outcompeted by startups, right? We've kind of seen that happen with big tech. I won't point, point at fingers. Uh, I'll let people, other people <laughs> figure out what I'm referring to. But, um, you know, essentially, if you have a paperclip maximizer, uh, 
at any point that it starts producing paper clips instead of you know assigning resources to uh, figuring out how to grow and sustain itself, it's going to get out competed by some variant, either variant of itself or competing biological or non-biological uh, intelligence system. And so, you know, I, I think like these common, you know, doomsday scenarios, like really fall apart once you understand some physics and thermodynamic limits of computation uh, or understand some optimization theory. And so, you know, but I, I'd love to hear kind of, um, you know, any other counter arguments. I, I, I want to say that like, and maybe Bayes can add to this, you know, EA and EAC align on quite a few things, right? Ultimately, we're, we're, we both care about, you know, civilization and, you know, the benefit uh, of all. Um, we just think we have different ways of going about it uh, and different, like, ultimately things we're optimizing for. And in our case, where we diverge is per mainly that, you know, AI is one of the most potent technologies for massive good and massive utility uh, towards, you know, the advancement of civilization. Uh, uh, and it, it, we shouldn't kind of, uh, neurotically obsess over, uh, fictitious stories of how it will lead to our doom, especially if like such stories kind of fall apart as soon as you examine them from first principles. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that for now, but I'd love to hear Dan and Eric's thoughts and then have Nathan jump in potentially and go on. So I guess for starters, I should probably, you know, say there's a lot of things I would agree with you guys on in terms of, you know, largely having been a libertarian for most of my adult life and being kind of a, you know, Hayekian, if you will, uh, definitely a big believer in, you know, bottoms up organization for most things anyway. Um, and you know, also pretty open to, I think, a lot of different futures. Uh, it sounds cool to me if we could, you know, g be a multi-planetary species and, you know, colonize the universe that or let's start with the, um, the galaxy, I guess, and then we can move on from there. Uh, long way to go. So I really do think that, you know, there's a lot that we would agree on. I don't want to, you know, go into questioning from like an adversarial standpoint. Cause again, I do think there's a lot that I would, uh, we could find agreement on, I guess where I kind of get off the train a little bit is it seems like a leap to me to say that everything will be fine, which kind of sounds like the general conclusion, right? That like, I'm understanding you correctly. Everything sort of competes and out of that kind of comes, you know, an acceptable outcome. Um, I would say that seems like it is broadly true in like, you know, that my local grocer has like pretty good merchandise, you know, available and it's usually not toxic. I, I do like enjoy the benefits of that. I'm a little bit not quite making the leap with you that we should accelerate everything. Um, I'm also not quite there on that. We should kind of accept anything that comes next, you know, I could very easily imagine something kind of entering into our world and out competing us and taking all the energy and, you know, going out and getting more energy and still feeling like, I don't like that thing. <laughs> and it doesn't like me, you know, and we don't have any values in common. And so I, I kind of don't understand 
Um, I think those are kind of my two big leaps that as I've been sitting here, I've, I've not been able to make with you. And I, I'm very uncertain, I guess, just to further contextualize, like, you know, if Eliezer, you know, is kind of at the high end of like, we're all going to die for sure. Or maybe like Nate Soares from Miri is even, even maybe higher on the, we're all going to die probability estimate. Um, you know, I'm, I wouldn't be nearly as confident as they are, but I also don't think I can get my, nothing I've heard gets me lower than say, you know, a 1% chance that we're all going to die. Um, and to me, that is like pretty seriously worrying. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know that there's really much that, you know, just given the, the totally unprecedented nature of AI in general, I'm not sure that there's much that folks could say that would make me like be, you know, sufficiently confident. So I guess I'd also really like to get a sense for where that confidence comes from in, in you guys. I don't think most people are going to make that leap with you based on what you've said so far. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, um, yeah, like every every, every living organism eventually dies off it leaves behind a sort of uh evolution of itself some sort of either genetic fork or uh potentially you know some work they've left behind some knowledge um and that's kind of what they leave behind in in terms of like their imprint on uh civilization and um you know ultimately there's no guarantees that humans live forever um and every whether it's kind of like your cells of a certain you know genetic neighborhood optimizing for you know the highest likelihood of their genes being passed on or you know that kind of instills upon us kind of uh an in-group preference at all scales whether our tribe our, our family our tribe and then our nation and then team human broadly but um ultimately it's kind of like um you know if you only care about your team in the grand scheme of things, there's no guarantee that you always win. And even if you win for a while, in general, the notion of what is your team drifts and changes, right? And empires, you know, they start off a certain way with a certain culture and then there, there's cultural drift and then eventually they crumble. And, you know, um, it's not uh, clear to me why like humans are the final form of living beings. Uh, I don't think we are. <laughs> I don't think we're adapted to take to the stars, for example, uh, at all. And we're not uh, easily adaptable to new environments, especially other planets and so on. And so at least like if I just look on like the requirements of having life that becomes multiplanetary, we're not adapted for it. And so it's going to be some other form of life that takes to the stars one way or another. But on a shorter time scale, you know, that's on a far time scale. But on a shorter time scale, I think that um, right now, AI is not a, it's not a living thing. Like it doesn't capture resources in the environment to replicate itself uh, and so on. It is just like neural net APIs running on GPUs in the cloud, right? And if you want to consider that quote unquote alive, uh, then, you know, the selective pressure on the space of AIs right now is whatever neural net has highest utility to our economy and to humans, we put the capital down and, and put the energy down to sort of feed the GPUs that host the model and, and, and make it alive, right? 
And right now it's kind of fully dependent on us for its survival, right? And so right now we have all the leverage. We could just unplug it, right? Uh, I know it's a meme, but like it's 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 true. <laughs> Shut down the cloud. It's not alive anymore. So we have we have total leverage. It's totally dependent on us. So we're still very far from embodied intelligence. We still we're still no, you know not close to having robotics figured out. We can go why that is. Like motor intelligence is much more complex than a white collar work like intelligence. Um, but we're nowhere near embodied intelligence. We're nowhere near AIs figuring out a whole supply chain on how to replicate themselves. In fact, we have all sorts of problems in terms of supply chain to even make just basic chips, never mind whole, whole, whole bodies. Um, and so we're not even close to AIs being competitive with us. Now, you could paint other doomsday scenarios where, you know, some AIs, I don't know, so some government official interacts with chat GPT and becomes uh, convinced to, I don't know, launch nukes or something. But right now there's no selective pressure. There's no gradient of incentive for it to, to do that. Um, and I mean, I, I don't see how it would be more convincing than a, than a human, but again, like we'll, we'll see, we'll see how these GPT bots or whatever uh, get better over time. So at least to me, I just I'm just not convinced that AI is actually competitive with humans, even if it like if like some nuclear powered GPU cloud runs some mega neural net that's technically smarter than any human on Earth. We still have all the leverage over it uh, at this stage. And so I'm not panicking uh, yet, but I agree that there's no guarantee that humans win forever and that our camp wins forever but that is just a universal truth that you you have to accept just like you know your 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 favorite sports team is not going to win the super bowl every year right <laughs> um and so uh yeah anyways so 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 those are some of my uh, arguments for uh maybe maybe we shouldn't panic as much um maybe do you have any like uh rebuttals or other things you want to expand upon yeah, I mean, I guess for one thing, when you said, uh, you know, we're nowhere close, I was reminded of the thing that's been circulating on Twitter in the last day or two, which was a list of AI uh, achievements that we were supposedly nowhere close to as of 2021 when the list was published. And now you can kind of look down that list and you see like five of the seven things on it have been accomplished. So I would encourage people to just bear in mind that like, even the predictions of the people in the AI space around what would be achieved on a timeline as short as like one to two years have recently been dramatically superseded. And that could happen again. It may not happen again. Uh, I kind of hope, you know, that things move a little more slowly than I fear that they might. Um, which is not even the same thing as saying that I think we should take drastic action to slow them down, but just that I think the pace of change is getting kind of uncomfortable and will bring, you know, kind of its own problems, but even, you know, even more basically just is not something that we're like very good at predicting. I think like the track record of predictions is just plain poor um, across the board, you know, with few, with few outliers who can say that they really saw where things are going. Um, so that's one kind of concern. So, so I want to get concrete here, though. 
So I, I think Beth brought up two specific instances. There's the AI now gets capable and smart enough in a reasonably short period of time that it can control the physical world and specifically manifesting into supply chains so that it can start to control the, the flow of resources. And then the second, which is it's so smart, it can trick humans into doing what it wants. Like what, which of those, and, and maybe you do the, the, the trick humans into controlling the resources, right? Or the nuclear missile or whatever. Is, is, is the fear the tricking humans or is it, it's just going to be so smart. We can't even comprehend the, the strategies, you know, to use the AlphaGo example, what is it like move 37? It's like, oh, that's a bad move, but it ends up being a good move. Like what, what, what are we actually specifically worried about? I kind of think everything's on the table, to be honest with you. Um, I try not to over-index on any one particular failure mode. I've been kind of working on writing something that's like, here's a long list of things that could go wrong that, you know, you may think none of them individually are super likely, but cumulatively, it seems like, you know, that whole list would be something that ought to be taken seriously. You know, the tricking thing um, goes, I don't know if that goes back. I mean, in some sense, the whole field of, of AI was kind of founded on this notion of like the Turing test, which is fundamentally kind of a deceptive frame, um, which is probably a big mistake to put the whole thing in, in that, um, you know, lens from the beginning or to define, you know, success as like tricking the user. <laughs> That's probably, you know, probably should be a little more careful about how we kind of set our success criteria, but more recently, Eliezer posted or you know posited this um, AI in a box scenario, and actually ran an experiment with humans where he said, um, "I will pretend to be the AI in the box. Your job is to let me or not to not let me out of the box, no matter what I say, and uh, I will bet you that I." we can enter into this like private dialogue. I will require that you don't tell anybody what I said, but you can tell them the results of the experiment. And he ran this a couple of times with actual money on the line. And um, I believe it was one of two people that he actually, you know, went to all the trouble to set up the bet and have the anonymous dialogue with ultimately came back to the public and said, I let him out of the box, <laughs> you know, and now I have to pay the money. And nobody knows what happened in those uh, transcripts. But Eliezer's point was kind of like, if I, with all this setup, can convince the skeptic to let me out of the box when he has to pay me conditional on doing so, and he knows it's me, because that's how we set the whole thing up, then like it shouldn't be that big of a leap to think that you know a, a sufficiently advanced AI might be able to trick people. And you know, by the way, the way that they're trained right now kind of incentivizes that because they are trained to maximize the human feedback score, or at least that's kind of the naive implementation of like a reinforcement learning paradigm. The AI learns to maximize the score, you know, whatever will get me the highest score from the user. That's what I'm supposed to do. Obviously I'm beginning to anthropomorphize there and it's hard to avoid. Uh, but you know, we are exploitable. Whether you look at behavioral economics or heuristics and biases literature, there are all of these sort of systematic predictable ways in which people are irrational and exploitable. And as we're getting to AI systems that are starting to demonstrate theory of mind, you know, understanding what people were thinking and what is implied by rather subtle statements, it doesn't seem like a crazy leap to say, 
maybe they will start to develop, you know, kind of these dual models where there's like one model of the world that is, you know, the truth and about kind of making good predictions, but maybe there's another one that sort of coexists or is in kind of a superposition with the first that is really about telling people what they want to hear because that's what maximizes the score, right? I mean, if you went to your AI and you said like, do I look good in this dress? What's it going to tell you? And that's kind of a toy example, obviously, but, you know, again, if, if it can start to learn to tell us what we want to hear in order to maximize its own feedback score at the potential expense of the truth. You know, how, how do we know, first of all, we don't have right now the interpretability work to say if that's happening, we couldn't, you know, reliably identify that. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that people kind of hope things will move a little more slowly for the people that I know in AI, by the way, even the ones that are the most doomer, like they're not, blind to the upside of the technology they would like to see everyone in the world have access to like a great ai doctor and you know all the the great things that could come from that but they sort of are like shit you know we're training with this highly imperfect feedback mechanism that is our ratings that creates this gap between the truth or you know purely accurate predictions of reality and what we want to hear which creates a, a sort of exploit opportunity for the AI. And we have no way to detect if that's going on. Maybe we could just like slow down a little bit on the top end training runs. That's not to say like, don't, you know, make your stable diffusion variations and, you know, fine tune it on Eric's face. So you can have Eric in every, you know, context that you'd ever want to see him. Like by all means, like do all those sorts of things. But do we need to like 10 X or hundred X from GPT-4 training scale up to the next level, like right now, maybe we could take a minute to enjoy that technology, to implement that technology, to pull it apart and understand what's going on in that technology, try to get to a, a theoretical understanding that is robust enough that we could say, if these things were starting to deceive us, we would be able to know that, or we're at least pretty confident that we'd be able to know that based on our ability to inspect what's going on inside. Um, you know, that's just kind of one branch, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of analogies, a lot of stories back to your question of like, what would you worry about first? To me, the most compelling is this deception, the notion that because we're unreliable raters subject to systematic exploitation, the AIs may pick up on that. I think there's a lot of other flavors and you, you can't even really like imagine what they all might be. But to me, it kind of adds up to, you know, enough that it's worth worrying about. So, so here's, here's a, here's a uh, question for you, you know, like, uh, in a sense, if you think of like nation states or corporations, uh, they are meta organisms of, of humans, uh, human intelligences. They're, they're in a sense, they're super intelligences, right? Because they're kind of a mixture of expert model of different humans, right? A task comes to an organization, it gets routed to the proper expert. And they have kind of a collective meta neural network of all their expertise that can effectively have far more parameters than any one brain could fit uh, physically, right? And organizations uh, like corporations are, we, we deal with them every day. And we somehow we found a way to align them through competition, keeping them in check through competition and a healthy marketplace, right? And, and ensuring there's not, um, you know, monopolies and so on. And so we've already been studying how to align 
super intelligences through our legal system. And we already know how to interface with them. You align interests by kind of exchanging utility, either utility for money, exchanging utility or exchanging capitals uh, of some kind. Um, and I think that's how we're going to align with super intelligences uh, in the future. But we, we already have kind of like this subversion and, and coercion problem with corporations, right? Their incentive is to grow at all costs and increase their metrics. And they don't necessarily care about the well-being of their subjects, but somehow we're okay with that. And somehow we've done pretty well in our capitalist system uh, through that. And so um, how would you like, uh, you know, differ problem of aligning a uh, artificial superintelligence that runs on computers versus a, you know, biological superintelligence that is, let's say, a corporation or a megacorp, right? To me, they're kind of very similar. Uh, sure, there's IO bottlenecks in terms of a corporation, but they're still, you know, if you have 100, 200,000 humans, like some of these big tech corps have, there's a lot of intelligence there. And that's a lot of power. And somehow, we're not crumbling under their weight yet. And so um, how would you differ aligning AI? Or if Dan has other questions you'd like us to cover before we finish, uh, I'm, I'm glad to answer those as well. But uh, yeah, up, up to you guys, Eric. And No, no, no. I would love, I would love to hear Nathan's answer to that. But the, the thing I would just add on to there, and we also have a, a mass scale deception that exists in society, American consumer culture. There's almost every product in the market is sold to you to, to make you feel better about yourself in a reality that doesn't exist, right? You, you see the model in the ad, um, or at least when models used to be like people would, they would aspire to be. Um, sorry, joke about body positivity, but um, you have a, uh, like someone in clothing, you're like, wow, if I just buy that clothing, I will also be that great or beautiful. And so we, 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 we have mass scale deception across everything. If I just drink this Coca-Cola, I will feel better about myself. And then they get a little bit of dopamine and then it turns out it's like, that's actually really bad for you. But, but like that hasn't totally destroyed society. I mean, you could argue that there are a lot of bad effects from that, but the reality is market-based capitalism and consumer culture has plenty of that. And, and we seem to survive and, and if anything, continue to make progress. So I, 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 I very much build off of Beth's point in the sense that like, I think capitalism is a great example of an emergent system that we have kept in check. I might interject here. It might be good to try to like sharpen this up a little bit. Um, so I kind of use this abstraction um, of uh, what I, you know, like you can think about a capabilities landscape sort of across civilization. Uh, you know, you have like peaks uh, where uh, there's like more capability uh, and we can think about capability as like solving problems, like capacity to harness energy, things like this. Um, Right. So I think what the classical fear of runaway, fast takeoff, uh, you know, recursive, uh, self-improving AI, recursively self-improving AI, um, what that looks like is sort of like a, a, you know, a delta function like spike on the capabilities landscape. And I think like what we're saying mostly uh, amounts to, uh, or okay, partially amounts to claiming that uh, to have, you know, sort of this, you know, very, very sharp spike. Uh, has like a massive associated energetic costs. And, and that gets cashed out in, right, like frictions with the real world and things like this. Um, we can talk about the details of that. Um, but in general, it's just like for every uh, increment in the uh, sort of like delta that a given 
uh, like region of the capabilities landscape has over other points, uh, you're like paying a massive uh, energetic cost. And so when you say, I'm worried that AI is going to, so, so like Steelman, what Nathan's saying a little bit, and, and, and like the general AI, uh, like risk, uh, uh, the person who's concerned with AI risk uh, more generally, um, it's that there's going to be a, a, you know, a deformation in the capabilities landscape that is so unprecedented that um, the infrastructure of society and civilization will not be able to withstand the exploits uh, or the insults that come out of uh, the, the corresponding system. And I think this is like a reasonable thing to uh, be concerned about. And there's like a couple of, of things to, to go down uh, the list about uh, though. Uh, the first thing is that actually, how do we sort these? Um, yeah. So I think the first thing is that um, every, when you, when you actually start to write out these scenarios, uh, like, we train an AI. The AI has an inner, uh, so you know this notion of the outer uh, uh, optimizer, the inner optimizer. Um, uh, we have some inner misalignment, right? There's a hidden goal inside of the the model that uh, you know arose during the the normal gradient descent uh, training, and that goal is going to point a, point the model in a direction uh, in, in sort of goal space that we that we would rather it not uh, be pointing at. Um, uh, and then, not only is that inner optimizer there. Uh, or sorry, yeah, yeah, sort of like these these hidden goals there, uh, uh, but those then express themselves during some inference. They make contact with uh, you know external reality in some way, and then and, and so if you start to write out how these these things actually instantiate in the real world, what you're doing is you're um, you know you know multiplying these like probabilities together, and and when you do that, like your estimates of any given scenario should go down. Um, and I think that, like in practice, the once you start to get outside of of the system, once you, so so yeah, we can talk about uh, you know how uh, exploits might leave the lab or whatever. Um, but once you know a proposed exploit leaves the lab, the question of whether or not it can be effective at actually breaking down civilizational infrastructure, societal infrastructure, um, uh, at a scale that is truly existential uh, risk. Um, uh, it, it's just, it's, yeah, it, you have to like, to, to really zoom into that kind of claim, you have to like expand it out. And I think it gets quite, quite complex. And, uh, it's just such a contingent claim to say we have a, a misaligned AI, the world is over, uh, it's like very big inferential leap, uh, right there, therefore the world is over. Another way to put it is like, you know, I think, I think what AI existential risk folks are really scared of is kind of an intelligence monopoly, like one intelligence with its own goals that are not necessarily aligned with the rest of the world, just being this sort of singularity, right? Just like one corporation, if it had too much power in the world, would optimize for the benefits of the corporation, not the rest of the world, right? Uh, and that sort of asymmetry in the capabilities landscape that Bayes is talking about would be kind of like one intelligence is like overcapitalized in terms of how intelligent it is relative to others. And that would be a bad scenario because there's not a healthy competitive landscape to keep it in check. And I think, I think we kind of align uh, on that uh, uh, with kind of the EAs and AI existential risk folks. And that's why we think that variance and competition is good. And that maybe could bring us to um, open source versus closed source models. Right. So 
there is let's let's assume there is some unknown risk probability right uh right certainly there's a number um and we don't know what it is um but we know these all these facts the question is now what what do we do about it right so the main reflex that people have that society has had that culture has had is um hit the brakes um we cannot uh we have to have like we have to sort of sit back think about this problem a lot uh really study it and try to try to solve it um before we go any further but the issue is that we are uh uh, uh, all of this is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a competitive landscape. It's happening in an adversarial landscape uh, at at many scales. And um, this is not just a uh, you know um, right like a, a, an argument about China uh, usurping the U.S. in terms of capabilities uh, or something like that. I think there are um, yeah, there, it's like multi scale competition, multi scale adversaries, and um, it is not free to sit around and wait. Uh, to to work on this technology, especially given where we are at today, given that um, so so um, maybe I differ from Beth a little bit on this. I'm like pretty bullish uh, on the progress that we will make in the next ten years on this on this problem, and I fully expect there to be you know uh, like GPT three, uh, Sydney Chat GPT like flavor or or or, or level or more uh, events. At increasing frequency over over that period, um, but uh, right. So, given that the reflexes to 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 try to uh, hit the brakes, um, this creates like some disadvantage in the competitive landscape. Um, but it also does this thing, right? So, when you cre- it actually in- it, it increases the likelihood that you get um, these um, regions of um, more uh, asymmetric advantage in the capabilities landscape, right? So, when you when you, and this happens when you create regulation as well, right? So when you regulate, you reduce the uh, the degree of dissipation of these innovations, right? So I call this alpha dissipation, right? You have an innovation, and then gradually it disseminates through you know the economy and through civilization. Uh, all the little workers in the economy uh, work to you know uh, capture the value that can be captured from that innovation. And when you create regulation, you reduce the the degree of alpha dissipation, which reduces the degree to which you flatten the capabilities landscape. And when you, when you do that, you, you actually worsen the problem. Um, and it actually is even worse than that because when you don't, because yeah, because basically when we, uh, when it comes to AI, right, the, the, this, the sort of innovations that we're dissipating are actually going to help us, uh, to harden our civilizational and societal infrastructure, uh, in the face of these challenges that will come from having, uh, you know, massive, massive amounts of, you know, you know intelligence increase uh, on earth. And so I strongly believe that like what stability is doing uh, and, 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 and efforts in this direction, I strongly believe that they are a force for good. They are not increasing uh, risk substantially and where they are, they are contributing locally to hardening infrastructure, which we absolutely must do. That's an imperative that we know we have to do um, because otherwise we will have like, uh, you know, people getting exploited left and right. You know, grandma's going to get a, a call from, uh, you know, Barack Obama and, you know, uh, he's going to like ask for her bank account information and she's going to be, uh, you know, fully convinced uh, to, to give it all away. Uh, right. Like all from that to, you know, massive uh, reward hacking through like end to end, you know, uh, optimized, grading optimized generative media. Like, 
there's so many things that uh, we we have to work on. We we have Photoshop now, right? And ignore the AI stuff. Just the fact that no one with their right mind trusts an image they see on the internet. Did we have to upgrade civilizational infrastructure? Like it just kind of society. I, I think, think I think of that as like societal infrastructure, right? It's like uh, you can think about this as maybe it's mimetic infrastructure, right? Um, I sort of think about that full stack. Uh, maybe maybe my shorthand isn't very good for it right now. Uh, but uh, no, I agree, right? It's like it's sort of like uh, in that case, what you need to do is up. I, I would actually say in some cases, no, just depending. Maybe it's a function of age a little bit, right? Um, depending depending on the person, maybe they they aren't quite so sensitive to to this uh, possibility. And uh, yeah, I think yeah, but I think it's a good good point. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just like you see that the the Joe Biden saying stuff on Twitter and like no one of the very online people, they don't even have to be an AI expert. They know that that's fake, but you show it to a, you know, a, an older person who might not get exposed to that stuff and they might think it's real. But also just young people not that long ago, right? I mean, I do think there's been a real upgrade there in terms of, I, you know, I think the, the mimetic infrastructure is a pretty good way to describe it. Like you could definitely go back not that many years and people would not really have a reference for the even the possibility that something so compelling could be faked, right? So the when the prior on that is so low, then what else are you going to do but believe it, right? I mean, the, the people used to say, seeing is believing. We're going to have to retire that saying because it's not really anymore. But, you know, that served us pretty well for an awfully long time. And, you know, I do think there is some... I think we're in some ways fortunate that that sort of technology kind of ramped up gradually in a way where we could see it coming in a way where, you know, we've had the last however many years where people have been kind of saying deep fakes are coming, deep fakes are coming. Oh, this is going to be, it's going to be really crazy when the deep fakes come. And now everybody's heard that, or at least enough, you know, enough people have heard it to the point where, you know, there is some resistance and I hope that we can get, you know, to a similar place with a lot of the risks of associated with AI, like some of them, you know, maybe outside of what our memetic infrastructure can handle, but some probably are within what our memetic infrastructure can handle. But it does take, you know, we only run on so many hertz, right? So we are at so many hertz. So it does seem like we need some time to adjust and kind of figure out, you know, what we can still trust or we're going to be like pretty quickly, totally adrift. One of the dangers we're seeing right now, of the narrative with deceleration is that if the Western world adopts kind of deceleration mindset because they're trying to be virtuous um, and some other adversaries don't necessarily slow down their research, then, then you have what, you know, Bayes has been talking about a sort of capabilities gradient like a, a difference in capabilities and that sort of power asymmetry is pretty dangerous, right? So there's there's no one, there's nothing keeping uh, that sort of higher intelligence in check, right? Just like, you know, in a sense in EAC, we're trying to have kind of antitrust for AI capabilities, right? Like we're trying to maintain a nice, healthy adversarial equilibrium. And so this is kind of a pattern that has repeated itself. You know, we've had like, ESG uh, efforts in Europe and anti-nuclear sentiment. And then that led to, uh, you know, relying on certain foreign adversaries for energy and was pretty much net negative. And, and you know, adversaries uh, of the Western world ended up uh, profiting off of 
what they call useful idiots that adopt ideologies that are useful to their ends, right? Um, and so I think that AI safety to me walks and talks, not all of AI safety, of course, but some of this like very alarmist uh, uh, faction kind of walks and talks like one of these, you know, psychological operations that are meant to kind of uh, disarm, demoralize, and neutralize the West's capabilities. And, you know, isn't it convenient that just when the West is ahead in terms of AI capabilities, we decide to slow things down, right? And uh, <laughs> let other people catch up uh, because, you know, we want to be cool at SF house parties and, and talk about uh, our research. I don't know. <laughs> I think like, I think like there's been a lot of co-opting of, of virtue signaling for uh, what turned out to be nefarious purposes. Uh, and so, you know, part of EAC is, you know, at least being mindful of that, that it's kind of anything that like, uh, you know, uses like, uh, it's kind of a mimetic or mind virus, like, you know, uh, uh, ideology that harnesses people's, uh, penchant for virtue signaling to push some agenda forward. I'd just be very resistant, uh, uh, like to pushing that forward. Cause you don't know who or what is pumping it forward. I would say that, you know, it's not just foreign adversaries. It's like megacorps right now, you know, like for example, if you're in the lead, like OpenAI and Microsoft, now's the time for regulatory capture. Now that you're in the lead, it's time for everyone else to slow down, <laughs> right? Let's capture our lead. And so it's not just, uh, you know, necessarily foreign adversaries, like interests of, of, of certain centralized entities. And so, it's just like, I think maintaining a culture of skepticism towards uh, such mimetic viral ideologies that are kind of top down, secretly uh, controlled is, is, is healthy and important. Uh, and that's another aspect in which EAC is kind of resisting uh, kind of this, this EA meme that's kind of taking over the AI world. Um, so want to add that. Um, um, well, you know, one, one way to do that is to maintain a healthy community of developers and not letting AI become super centralized under a very few players that then could be, um, you know, uh, subverted or co-opted um, because, you know, if you have one org that controls all of Western AI, right, then then if you, you know, compromise that org, that org you end up capturing the power of that AI and then and then you're in control. Whereas if you have a very high variance landscape of many millions of neural nets run by, you know, I don't know, some sort of uh, collective of, of, of DAOs or, or groups of people, uh, then, then that's really hard to, to co-opt and, 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 and kind of take over. Um, and so it's kind of anti-fragile. It's more fault tolerant to corruption, right? That's why bottoms up is your i mean capitalism tends to win against communism because uh in general communism is not fault tolerant to corruption of the control nodes of the of the government or meta organism and so we're seeing kind of a similar trend in ai now of centralization and that sets up you know a scenario where some of these orgs could become uh compromised and suddenly the western ais can be spewing information that 
um, benefits whoever, and you know, subverted them. So it's something to be mindful of because it has um, happened in the past uh, with all sorts of organizations. Um, but uh, yeah, I think overall maintaining kind of a, an open source culture, maintaining compute that's decentralized, knowledge that decentralized to some extent um, uh, is going to be super important to maintain like a healthy marketplace of AIs and maintain an uh, adversarial equilibrium. And our point is that safety is achieved through adversarial equilibrium and that over-centralization and regulatory capture is the enemy of that and ironically more unsafe. So how how far do you guys push this acceleration concept? So here's just the, this may be a terrible thought experiment, but let's say we take ourselves back to like 1944 or 45 and we're in the Manhattan Project and it's like, guys, we figured it out. We can make a bomb. There's just one problem. It might ignite the atmosphere and we'd need to take a little while and do some calculations on that before we uh, do any like actual physical tests. You guys were there at that time. Would you be like, nobody's got time for that. You know, the Germans are going to beat us if we do anything to slow down. So we don't have time, you know, let's just light the fucker and see what happens. Cause it kind of sounds like what you're saying now with AI. And I, you know, I'm, I'm always apologizing for my analogies cause I think they mislead often more than they help. But that was a moment where it was like, breakthrough, you know, specifically to like energy, you know, all these new capabilities were sort of there, but you know, I'm pretty glad they did that calculation. And then I would also kind of say like, it seems like society has some pretty legitimate interest in regulate regulating, like how much fizzle material, like any, you know, particular group or individual can sort of aggregate. It doesn't feel like a big burden to me that there's somebody now, I think we should build nuclear plants to be clear. I'm very pro nuclear. Uh, I want to see a lot of plants come online. Like it's a, it's a real shame that we haven't built any, uh, but you know, that there should be a process that you should like, go through some hoops to, you know, demonstrate your credibility, your like, you know, your safety standards that, that, you know, that everything is up to par, like all that seems totally appropriate. And I don't want to see us get bogged down, but I also don't want to see us just declare, you know, totally open season for anybody to do whatever they want, you know, with fizzle material, because like, that's the fastest way to get some plants online either. So, you know, what would you have done in the Manhattan project in, in that time, I think these are categorically different things. Um, Beth, maybe you have uh, something you want to say beyond that. But I think the comparison between nuclear and AI, I think, yeah, breaks down in in, in, in a few ways. Um, maybe just really briefly, I'll say, I, I think being able to cause that much of a uh, like, right? So, so, so nuclear weapons uh, they give you the ability to affect the universe. Uh, in a way when, that when you wield them is, is sort of constant, right? It's like, uh, you know, given a certain size uh, of weapon, uh, you you can just kind of like, uh, you know, root access, like vaporize things in, in the universe, right? And so, I, yeah, I think that's pretty different from AI. Uh, and, and, and hopefully it's clear why I'd be happy to go into details about, about how. I think like uh, nuclear weapons is a purely destructive technology, right? And and so like 
banning nuclear weapons is clear, you know, removing downside risk, even though, you know, in principle, one could argue that it's maintained a sort of peace from mutually assured destruction. Um, but, you know, let's say you were to say, let's ban uranium, right, uh, as a whole, right, which is kind of where AI safety is going with kind of regulating GPUs, right? Well, it could be used for bad, but it could be used for good, right? Like uh, nuclear fission reactors. And in fact, uh, huge damage has been done to our green energy capabilities from the uh, nuclear fear mongering, right? Like it's indelible damage to our culture and why people, you know, fear having nuclear reactors anywhere near, you know, city centers and so on. Um, and so we just got to be mindful when there's like doomerism going about and mimetic, you know, cultural shifts because they can do like indelible damage. And, you know, there, there's huge opportunity costs to uh, leaving certain high potential technologies behind or decelerating their adoption because there, yeah, there, there's huge upside being left on the table. And that's something that EAs and AI access standard to risk folks really underestimate the potential upside of really adopting uh, AI tech, um, you know, and, and scaling it as fast as possible. Because ultimately, you know, how many humans, even if you're, uh, you know, your, your loss function is like how many humans are living comfortably, right? The amount of humans we can support in our civilization depends on how much energy we have and how many people we can feed and, and, and uh, you know, how many folks we can support sustainably. And that's determined by kind of our Kardashev scale to some extent. And to climb the Kardashev scale, you need more intelligence because intelligence, its purpose is to find and, uh, and use energy towards sustenance and growth of civilization. And so you should be for more intelligence faster because it should allow for more humans uh, to exist uh, and, and uh, more people to uh, live great lives. Yeah. So the the one thing I would add on the nuclear uh, Manhattan project, who who was it? I forget. I, so Oppenheimer obviously is running it, but it's like uh, Ed Ed Teller or something is like, hey, like this might ignite the atmosphere. So they went and studied it, but it was a I don't know, six month study, like that was it. Like there was a bound, like figure it out. Okay, it's not going to do it, move ahead. And I think that any of the alignment AI safetyism stuff, it, it's a perpetual culture of control. It, it's, it's like, let's lock everything down and then we get to make decisions. And I think that, so, so that's where I think that analogy yeah. falls a little bit apart in the sense that the, that goal wasn't going to be stopped, but they thought prudent to saying, hey, like, let's just double check the math here or the, you know, the physics. And so I, I, in addition to your, your other point, Bev, of, of then you got to a world where you had fission, it, it, it was kind of growing as a, as a, you know, kind of miracle energy in the US. And then some 1960s hippies were kind of anti-Vietnam war and anti-nuclear weapons co-opted the word nuclear to the point where one three mile island happened, it, it hit this political storm, and we haven't built any new uh, fission power plants in, in the in the country, basically, like the, the, you can only expand existing ones. And it's like the first one in, in like 50 years is, is just getting finished in Georgia. And then they've layered in all these additional regulations. When if you just look at like Fukushima, for example, how many people died from the exposure to the, the nuclear disaster that happened there compared to the tidal wave, which killed, I think it was like 20,000 people just from 
the ocean. And so I, I think it's like when you start to allow that safetyism culture and in a centralized bureaucratic way, it, the the civilizational progress that we the potential for it is going to be vastly constrained. And I, and you can make arguments with the FDA. It's like what is it thalidomide, and it's just like this like crazy aggressive. Uh, pivot because people can get fearful if if the wrong people get into political control. And then once it's there, none of the politicians want to touch that bureaucracy and it it basically lives forever. And so I think that like we have to be really, really careful. It's like the worst type of regulatory capture. Ignore Microsoft and OpenAI benefiting from that. It's like you put it in a, a state bureaucratic body that now some bureaucrat has no incentive for progress. Like their whole point is to say no, because they get judged on, did any accidents happen or bad things happen during your, your tenure? And so I, I, I'm like, the, the last thing we want is a big bureaucratic organization top down managing all this stuff. And again, I'm broadly on the same side as Dan on almost every argument here, I think, uh, you know, certainly including the, uh, the terrible shame of not having built any nuclear plants. But it does sound like there's some window of agreement potentially around doing things that would be prudent. You know, it it seems like we all agreed that it was worth doing that study to try to get some confidence that we're not going to ignite the atmosphere with the first nuclear test. So is there a version of that in the AI space that you guys can get behind? And if so, like, I think you might actually find more common ground with the AI safety folks than than you think. Because again, at least my perception of them is I don't think they want to do to AI what has been done to nuclear. I think they just want to run kind of the equivalence of some of those, you know, atmosphere um, ignition studies and get to a point where we can like, look inside the AI and be pretty confident that it's not actively deceiving us or that it's not, you know, hatching gray goo plans or whatever, like, you know, it would be really nice to have that confidence before we like take pre-training up several more orders of magnitude worth of compute what do you guys think is a is a reasonable or prudent course that you know you would say okay well we don't have to go maximum speed all the time like yeah we could take a little detour for this or that that seems prudent is there anything there so this is this is a good segue um i just i just i think it's important to emphasize actually uh in general we're very supportive of uh, what I would, what I believe is like the majority of uh, the the effort uh, in the direction of of doing a lot work to align models uh, and to make models reliable. I think of this right. If we forget about the whole history of the field, I think you could imagine that we actually uh, you, you could imagine a world where it's actually quite a boring topic. It's called you know matrix multiplication reliability engineering and. Uh, you know, nobody really like looks at it and people just sort of uh, toil away. They figure out how to, how to do this thing and, 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 it, and, it, and it's fine. Um, I'm like, I'm very supportive of, of, of the, the serious people who are putting a lot of effort into uh, trying to, yeah, uh, do interpretability, uh, trying to uh, create um, models which are, you know, um, more uh, useful as tools to us. Uh, in that they are rely they they reliably perform the actions that we uh, request from them, uh, and I think it's like incredibly valuable. I think it's uh, there's there's you know you could talk about the semantics here, but um, you know on some level it is actually just uh, AI capabilities, right? It's like we just 
want better models. Uh, uh, and so I think for us, the biggest thing is, is actually, um, Right. So, so aside from the the, the stuff about uh, capabilities landscape regulation and, and the opportunity cost of, of all of these these sorts of uh, you know very uh, strong uh, interventions, I think uh, for us, like where this started actually is is about the culture. Right. I have personally known people who were very negatively affected by uh, the culture, uh, the the sort of apocalyptic culture around. Uh, the sort of less wrong uh, miri sphere of, of of this, um, and I I mean there you can read about stories about this. It's like it's quite sad. People don't, and so so my general belief is that people don't actually respond very well to the pressure of the apocalypse being put on their shoulders. And what we want is instead of blackpilling people, uh, making them feel like there's no hope. Actually, explicitly saying there is no hope. Uh, and I had, you know, we have no way of solving this problem. I think instead, uh, it's just like so much more functional to say there is hope. We can solve this problem. Uh, you know, let, we can quibble about the magnitude of the problems that we face. Um, but uh, let's be optimistic about solving it. I think there's like a real white pill to be had there. And I think it, one, creates uh, the conditions for people to have better experiences of this whole period of time uh, of history. And two, it, it, in, it increases the chances that we can like sort of... Uh, work together to solve the problems that, 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 we, that we do face. Um, and so I have a very optimistic vision of, of the work that, that serious people are doing. Uh, uh, like we could talk about the work at Anthropic. Uh, we could talk about Paul Cristiano's work. Uh, there's like a whole constellation, like conjecture, right? There, there's a whole constellation of people who are doing very serious work. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I believe people and culture work better when, when we're optimistic and have hope instead of, uh, you know, terminal despair. Yeah, no argument for me on that. I do think, um, you know, even if it just comes down to the very simple question of like motivating the safety researchers, you know, the some of the recent messaging has been pretty clearly suboptimal. The whole, you know, if you're outright telling people like you're doomed, you may as well not even try. You know, go spend more time with your family. Uh, that doesn't <laughs> it doesn't uh, seem to lead us toward any you know path toward solution. So that seems pretty clear to me. I, I would agree with, I think, everything that you said in that uh, bit. You know, it seems like after kind of bouncing off of one another for a little while here, you know, I wouldn't put myself in in the really either camp of like doomer or accelerationist. I kind of describe myself all the time these days as ambivalent, you know, in the in the you know classic dictionary sense of like, strong but seemingly conflicting feelings i get super excited about how awesome even just current ai can be let alone you know future ai i really do think it's you know endlessly fascinating fun to work with you know it makes my day-to-day -day workflow uh much smoother and and more enjoyable so i i really feel all that stuff and then i also do feel this kind of like but yikes man it, it does seem like we're playing with something that we don't really know how to control. We don't really understand its fundamental nature very well. You know, just because we know how to make it doesn't mean we know how it really works internally or, you know, what it might do. And yeah, those risks are like pretty low. Um, but I don't think we even need to think about like the far future, you know, to, to worry that like if something were to go wrong and it were to kill everybody that we know today, like that would be, you know, plenty bad enough. That's a Carl Schulman point, by the way, he's a, a you know, long time uh, kind of thought leader in EA. 
he always is very good about reeling these like thought experiments in and just being like, let's just talk about the current generation. <laughs> you know how bad that would be if we wiped ourselves out, like forget about, you know, foregone uh, possible futures. So I do really feel both of those things. Do you guys just don't feel the other side of it? Like there's no, there's no fear. There's no like, yikes, this seems like it could get out of hand, especially with, you know, order of magnitude of pre-training doubling every 18 months or whatever. I, I guess like uh, to, to answer this question and circle back to your, your Manhattan project question, which I really liked. Um, I would say that, you know, the Manhattan project, uh, you know, lighting up the sky on fire, what they did, they did physics calculations, right? And physics is kind of like, we, as humans, we can argue until, you know, the the cows come home, but ultimately we must answer to physics, right? So what does physics tell us about where things are going, right? And what does physics tell us in terms of the limits of computation and optimization? Fundamentally, you know, there is a minimal thermodynamic cost of computing. And in fact, uh, you know, optimization of any kind doesn't matter if you do an optimization hierarchy of, you know, parameters, hyperparameters, architectures, et cetera. Like it still costs you energy to get samples and, and optimize at, at all scales. Um, and so I think that you can, you could prove mathematically that recursive runaway self-optimization is impossible uh, physically. Um, you could also prove that gray goo mo most likely is is not possible either. So if you bounded that, then okay. So those mega infinite downside scenarios are are not there anymore. Okay, so that does change the reward calculus, right? Um, I mean, when it comes to like being extremely cautious before deploying things, I mean we've. We've changed our entire lives. Everything is run by an AI algorithm. You know, you know many of these um, recommendation systems that we use to find uh, partners, to find uh, connections, to find friends, to find information are all gated by some form of AI algorithm. And we've given them control over our lives. And they're not aligned in any way, shape, or form with like what's best for us. They're just aligned towards maximizing the profit, the corporation that runs them. And seems like we're, we're we're beyond that debate now. Now we're talking about unaligned AI APIs, but we're completely fine with like, you know, the TikTok algorithm melting our brains and letting it just consume attention at infinitum, right? So, so like, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we've already crossed that threshold of giving the keys away. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a great pitch for the next generation of technologies though. Like... What I don't, the, the leap there is not an obvious one. Like, I think a lot of people are saying, wait, that's all bad. Everything you just said is bad. Why would I want more? So here's the white pill. So Web 2.0 was kind of the attention economy. So which, which AI neural net gets run on average, right? Which one is quote unquote alive by my definition of alive being like there's a GPU, that a GPU instance that's getting paid for and run. Uh, the selective pressure was towards AI that captures our attention more right uh, and, and creates maximally distracting content or recommendations because it gets rewarded it gets selected for if it can get more attention from humans get more capital to run more gpus to run more instances of itself right 
But now, now that we're kind of creating AI that has utility like ChatGPT, the selective pressure is going to be towards AI neural net instances that have utility to us that we find useful. I think that's a much better selective pressure than what we used to have, right? I don't know if it's Web3 or Web4 now, like everything being LLMs talking to each other, the internet of LLMs, APIs, but call it Web4, whatever. Web4, uh, to me, I'm pretty optimistic about it. I think like there might be pockets of Web2-like behavior where it tries to distract you, but overall, it's like the selective pressure on AI right now is going to be what has utility towards us, humans, human civilization, our economy, and so on. And that is that is a selective pressure where it's going for. It's not going towards AIs that can self-replicate and take over on our adversarial, at least at the moment, right? So that's why I'm not worried in the near term. In the medium term, who knows what happens. In the long term, like I said, I think like anchoring on present-day humans being preserved forever is not a realistic goal. And so I'm open to whatever happens there. So I think in the near term, it's going to be all right. As I said, I would you know, EAC were biased towards maintaining an adversarial equilibrium. So that means open sourcing models, keeping a healthy developer economy, not centralizing the compute, not centralizing the algorithms and the knowledge. Um, And kind of AIs will keep other AIs in check, just like megacorps keep other megacorps in check, right? Uh, So, you know, Microsoft uh, competing with Google on this AI aspect is, is, is a, you know, an example of kind of you fight power with power. And I think that maintaining this adversarial equilibrium is the way forward. Um, and that's only possible if there's not a monopoly on intelligence. And so we're fighting uh, our sort of, yeah, anti-monopolization of intelligence fight and uh, embrace the variance and accelerate. So <laughs> that's the that's the EAC way. Uh, so um yeah, but again, I think we align on many things. I think we align on many things, um, but we we just differ in like the way forward. To answer the question, uh, I I don't have I don't have uh, a lot of fear. I think it's a bit of a choice, right? Uh, in in the scheme of things, and I think the future can be scary. I think it's very possible that we're going to have significant increases in volatility. Uh, you know, on this time scale of 10 or 20 years. And I, I think it's important. I, I think it's like very, um, there's a lot of, uh, lot to be gained from, from practicing equanimity in this kind of environment, because uh, to stand back and, 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 and understand things uh, without fear, uh, like without amygdala hijack being computed in your brain, uh, right. Is it's just like, yeah, I don't know. I find it to be much, much more pleasant and, uh, 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 more likely to 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 lead to uh, good good decision making and uh, yeah yeah I don't I don't I just don't I think this is missing in culture so um, I think what we have here is something that counterbalances um, uh, uh, these other trends. Let me try another one on you just to see what you think. So let's say we're all Neanderthals and we're sitting around our you know campfires in uh whatever 10,000 years ago whatever I don't, i'm not uh, a great expert on all the dates here but like all of a sudden we've got the uh homo sapiens sapiens you know rolling in from africa and here we've been you know kind of hanging out and here they come and it's like well we could 
probably get along with them, right? I mean, we could probably coexist. And, you know, is there really any, you know, but, but, but wait, like Beth, Bay is like, they seem to have some capabilities that we don't have. Like they can coordinate across bigger groups. They seem to be taking over the world. Well, you know, let's just practice some equanimity and, uh, you know, hope for the best. Like we're now 3% Neanderthal. So I guess in some sense, you know, they left their imprint on the future. But I think if you ask the Neanderthals, they would be pretty unhappy with the outcome. And again, I kind of, well, obviously these are very different scenarios. You know, it's not meant to be a tight analogy, but I do kind of have this feeling that like, we might be sort of acting like the Neanderthals where we're kind of like, we can see the writing on the wall. We can see that there's some power here that doesn't seem like it's obvious necessarily how we're going to control it. We could choose to be optimistic, but might that not be like foolish? And might we be like dead as a result of, you know, kind of choosing that optimistic path? Like it didn't work out very well for the Neanderthals. I would, I would argue. No, I, there's a couple of things first. Um, okay, we could talk about the, the, the gap between the analogy and, and the, the situation we face. But I actually think that no, right? So I don't, I think that there's, there's a conflation between optimism and uh, sort of like, you know, starry eyed, uh, like foolhardy ness, right? And I, and I think that that's, to me, it's quite different. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, my, my personal opinion about this is people operate better when they are uh, like, not amygdala hijacked and so uh whatever the problems we face like that's the sort of state of mind that that we would probably want to support in culture and, and bolster in culture that's 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 one opinion the thing about um the, the gap between the analogy and the situation we face i think the first obvious thing right is that we uh, that neanderthals did not uh build uh homo sapiens right they they didn't uh, craft this they didn't have this sort of like you know homo sapiens 0 0.01 0.02 right uh, and so on and i think that um the other thing is is yeah again uh, we talked about this sort of like digital to analog interface right um it, it's not the same sort of situation uh right so in in the, the sort of competitive landscape of uh uh you know neanderthals versus homo sapiens they're sort of very much acting in the same environment and that's um, yeah, just not the case uh, for for us with AI. I think there's there's quite a big gap there. And and when you start to roll out the the sort of uh, uh, scenarios that 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 correspond to it, uh, I think you end up in the same kind of like where you have like inferential instability. Like you have this very long chain of contingent uh, hypotheses, and at the end, you end up with like a very unlikely scenario. For any single like highly specified scenario, that seems true to me, but kind of taking the, you know, integral, if you will, over that whole distribution of scenarios is where I think we wonder, like, do we get to 1% chance that we're all going to die? Do we get to, you know, 10%? Like, it, to me, it still seems really hard to make the case that we're not looking at something that's at least cracking north of 1%, which for me is enough to take it like extremely seriously I, I would i would agree that there is a true number right like that's fine um i don't know what the number is i'm not gonna I'm not gonna venture a guess um because i think probably those estimates are just a little bit like pulled out of thin air and not like it's sort of like uh maps to like your feeling about it like but but, but not very well 
Um, I think some people come up with reasoning that they think supports the numbers. I don't believe that that reasoning is usually realistic. Um, but yeah, it's not that there is no risk. I think it's just, um, uh, you know, what kinds of actions can we take that will actually uh, allow us to uh, thrive and flourish, uh, given that we want to, you know, uh, avert some some risks associated with this. So it's not, you know, don't do safety research, uh, don't do interpretability research, don't don't you know turn off the you know the RLHF, uh, right? It's I think this this kind of thing is is probably wrong, um, but taking these sort of irreversible actions that are you know, sort of uh, a priori, seemingly very likely to backfire. Um, like, I think it's been floated that we, you know, uh, shut down TSMC, like stop, stop Moore's law, right? Um, and I think this is pretty, it, it's, yeah, at the end of the day, right? Like, you are always in life facing this, this, this problem of I might die for, you know, uh, you know, given that I, you know, just, just because there's some baseline risk uh, associated with being alive. And I think, um, it's not wrong that the uh, risk that we face now is greater than the risk that we face in the eighties or the nineties or something, right. With respect to some specific technologies, right. Maybe, you know, for any given, you know, you could sum them up and imagine the sort of flow over time, but um, with respect to AI, certainly the risk is like monotonically increased. I think it's like true. Um, But I, I don't, I don't know that we have uh, much of a choice, but to sort of deal with the with the with the problem of having the technology here. I think building the the world, the, the you know, so 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 this is where you start to get into a vulnerable world hypothesis sort of territory. I, I, I should probably caveat and say I think a lot of EAs would explicitly disavow the paper and the conclusions of the paper, uh, but I, I'm I'm yeah I'm a little bit skeptical of that uh, disavowal. Anyway. Um, Right. So the, the paper says, uh, right there, you know, we can imagine that we live, uh, you know, in a, in a world where um, some, you know, as we invent technologies, uh, there's some chance, some probability that we don't know that we will pull a technology from, you know, the, the, the bag of, of all possible technologies and that that technology will sort of uh, uh, give civilization the, the capacity to, to really destroy itself. Um, and, and of course, like maybe, maybe, uh, you know, there's also some some uh, uh, scaling factor of like how easy it is and how much resources you need to do it. Um, and I think the the idea that's like put forward is that uh, you know technologies and I think specifically like AI uh, that they are so dangerous that the only way to sort of guarantee that you will not um, end up destroying civilization is to institute a global panopticon with predictive policing. And sort of uh, just like massive, you know, uh, sort of uh, surveillance and all of this. Uh, and I think that there's several problems with this. The first one is that um, I, I I don't know. I, 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 hmm. we, yeah, so we can talk about the human dignity angle of this, um, right? Because there's any such action would be on the basis of you know this very small probability. Right, which we don't even know the error bars for, uh, which we don't understand very well at all. We don't really understand the risk, uh, uh, how it scales at these very tiny levels. We know it's probably small, um, but we don't know exactly how it changes uh, around that uh, these various estimates that people have. 
Yeah, I think there's a question about uh, taking a very strong action on such a small problem. This is like a this is like a Pascal's mugging thing, right? You like pay all this this cost to try to avert this this very dangerous scenario, and um, yeah, what do you what do you do? You may actually create the conditions for for uh, you know human civilization to sort of flatline, right? It's uh, uh, or or worse, right? Um, it's very unclear what happens if you successfully create you know a, a thousand year panopticon. Uh, but I, I don't think it's a stable solution to the problem. I think you probably end up either with, uh, you know, uh, massive uh, regression in, in, in civilization or uh, over a long period, or you just end up back where you sort of started with, with things. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe Beth, you have something to say about this. I would say like, you know, if a company has a 1% chance of going to zero or it has, um, I don't know, 20% chance of uh, exploding to a trillion dollars in value. Do you still invest? Yeah, they yeah, do. Right. And so like, I think like people are trying to figure out, do they want to invest in human civilization, invest like their emotional capital and their time and energy into advancing civilization. And like, I, I think like giving up cause there's 1% chance of doom of like, that's really hard to predict how that would come about practically um, uh, versus like, you know, all the upside that we can have from either merging or we're leveraging AI to improve our lives and improve civilization. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would invest, like, I, I, I guess we're just bullish on, um, civilization co-evolving with these new technologies that we introduce and, you know, becoming much better at, uh, understanding, perceiving, predicting, controlling the world around us. And that unlocks a whole new set of technologies for us that allow us to uh, grow in scope and scale and quality of life, et cetera. And so, yeah, ultimately, like if there's one take home message is that um, I think that uh, deceleration and doomerism has massive uh, unpriced, uh, you know, opportunity cost of upside that uh, should not be underestimated and that. Uh, you know, we're proponents for uh, going faster because that's we're going to get faster to this uh, upside and um, a great future we want to live in. I might uh, suggest leaving it there for today. That was a pretty good summary kind of concluding point. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks so awesome. much. Thank you. It's a good time. Moment of Zen is brought to you by Riverside, the platform Dan, Antonio, and I use to record all of our podcast episodes with remote guests. Riverside captures exceptional audio and video quality, makes it incredibly easy for us to record conversations with multiple guests and then edit and publish within minutes. If you're hosting a podcast or often getting interviewed, use our code ZEN to get a 20% discount at Riverside FM. The link is in our description box. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? They just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, 
Roblox, and more, wondering what on earth is happening up in space. They just dropped a series on the satellite economy, or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos. They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people, movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.